The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. Hello and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. We are live from the Charles Schwab Impact Conference and we apologize for any background noise that you might hear, but we are smack dab in the middle of Discovery Data's booth. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have been successful because they found that point in their lives to throw caution to the wind and just go for it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the great appreciation for the lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place for advisors to come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. And our guest this morning is Christian McCormick, who's a senior product specialist at Allianz Global Advisors. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's a fantastic company, great name, lots of history. How long have you been there? I joined Allianz a little bit over four years ago. Um, and previously, I was at a quantitative firm uh, named Intech, uh, which is a subsidiary of Janus Capital Group, now Janus Henderson, I should say, yeah. which is uh, well-known in the industry. And where are you based? I'm based out of Denver, Colorado, where I work remotely oh. as I spend. Well, I'm based out of Denver and out of many different airports, as many of my <laughs> business colleagues can attest to. Yeah. Um, you're getting some snow there. Yes, a little bit early. Already, this year. yeah. Did. It was a it was a white and cold Halloween, but that didn't uh, that didn't keep too many trick or treaters out. Yeah. yeah. So there's been a huge ten year run of of passive investing, and now that may be changing. And when we were kind of like talking before we got on the podcast, you have a very different viewpoint on the on the active passive look. So let's talk more about that. Sure. I think the important takeaway is it's you can kind of almost beat your head against a wall over and over again and say active's going to come back, active's going to going to come back. And we approached it a little bit differently and we recognized early on that really what this was is a failure if you will kind of on asset managers more in the active management space to clearly articulate what it is their value proposition is for their clients. When you look at the sheer number of strategies out there, the variety of active managers in very efficient markets, such as the U.S., and in non-efficient markets in addition to that, that coincided with the rise and the proliferation of what we would call investment technology. So beyond mutual funds, the rise of ETFs, just the amount of data that's available, which then led to greater amounts of research, which then led to greater amounts of passive-type products being made that weren't just broad market exposure or, say, a particular sector, but then you got into smart beta, individual countries, uh, SRI, so a huge variety of passive options that are out there now. And what that forced us to do, at least at Allianz, was to re-articulate what it was our value proposition is, uh, is and was to our clients, which we think is important. Um, important for us internally and also important for our clients as well. Uh, And that really took two forms. So one was, of course, it's active management. So we are proposing to you that by using XYZ in the strategy, whatever strategy it may be, we are going to enhance your returns relative to this passive option or this low-cost option that you can get. And here's why you should consider that. 
But in addition to that, there are other parts of the relationship that we can focus on. So instead of, say, going in and proposing this and you get hired and then just on a quarterly basis, maybe you have a call, uh, it turned into what was a true partnership or what we found that clients wanted to have a true partnership. So research, spending more time with them on more educational topics, things that perhaps had nothing to do with the mandate whatsoever, that we needed to have a much broader interpretation of what our value proposition was. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback from that. It's also, you said, a very great time for self-reflection, whether you're an advisor or an asset manager. Uh, it is. So part of it is this move to part of it is this move to passive. So that certainly has created an opportunity for self-reflection amongst the individual managers and strategies themselves. So is, is there something beyond the firm that I work for that I'm doing that's different? If I'm a bottom-up fundamental manager, what is it that I'm incorporating in my strategy? Or if I look back, what is it that I've been doing different than? the bottom-up fundamental manager who also does U.S. equities down the street or the one who's in a different city, but we're all roughly fishing from the same pond. And then there's been self-reflection also kind of on a personal level. So, you know, we've had some pretty big changes come in and they're coming in in different phases. So the move to passive is one for the rise of sustainable type investing. So even if it's not an explicit investment strategy, it's this idea of should corporations be better kind of community citizens? And you see some like JP Morgan, you know, GE, uh, Amazon and others come out very proactively saying, yes, we should be judged and looked at on a variety of metrics. And then I would say the final one, in addition to that, is kind of the advent of, of data and, and technology overall. So artificial intelligence likes to steal a lot of the spotlight, but we think really what that indicative of is as technology uh, gets better and better, as data gets more and more thorough, as our ability to analyze and parse through this data, both to collect it and analyze it, improves by leaps and bounds, it seems like every month, what changes does that mean for every aspect of an asset manager, from back office to investments to analysis to face-to-face -face activity with clients? So it's self-reflection in a variety of ways, but it's really been forced upon by larger forces outside of the industry that are coming in. Allianz has a long history of ESG investment. So what many people want to know, is that a real thing? Is it pie in the sky? So talk about that. Uh, it, it is a real thing, um, without question. So just a little bit with our history, because it's an interesting story and I like telling the story, uh, mainly because we don't get credit for it, but we managed a, a bottom-up global equity fundamental portfolio uh, in Europe for a religious institution, and that religious institution had very similar exclusions that many institutional investors do. Some were religious-related, religious, religious related, uh, others were tobacco, uh, and others, nothing new there that had been in place for quite some time. But then they approached the portfolio manager and they asked, you know, we want to be a little bit more active with our companies. We would like to actually engage with them to see if we can get them to become better citizens, get them to do what they do in perhaps, you know, a more sustainable manner. I'm not sure if that's the exact word they use, but they didn't just want to exclude them. They wanted to vote proxies. They wanted to actually talk to senior management. Why do you do what you do? Would you consider doing this? Uh, this is one of the, your bigger investors talking. And at the time, Allianz wasn't equipped to do that, but we liked the idea, and it was a very important client for us. So that started us down this journey of what we would call SRI, or impact investment. So flashing forward, you know, we've now for 20 years and about uh, $27 billion, we have a variety of um, these portfolios that really have a, a dual mandate. Think of it that way. Is one is to have a very measurable impact, uh, positive impact on society and the community that you can show, and the other is to, of course, be the benchmark. 
So our own history tells us that it is real, that there is something to it. But I think the key part of that story that gets lost is this wasn't Allianz going out to all of its clients saying, hey, we have something new and great. You know, we would like you to maybe look at it. Instead, it was one of our clients coming to us saying, hey, listen, you manage this mandate for us along this context of self-reflection. You know, here's something different we would like to do. Can you partner with us in this aspect? And luckily, the answer was yes. And so we found that this is something real. It's how we discovered it. But even after 20 years, we've learned that even that's evolving. Our own definition of sustainable or ESG investing is evolving. And it very much encompasses not only what we can do very well, so we shouldn't be something that we're not, but also in particular for helping clients understand what exactly are you looking for? And let's see if we can meet that. And if not, maybe through education, we can help you find someone else who can maybe meet those needs. So do you have a series of products that or ESG and then some that aren't really, or is it starting to blend a little bit? Uh, we, the world, so I'll answer that, that, that latter question first. It, the world is starting to blend a little bit. I mean, as more common vocabulary is being used, actually, I, I would encourage um, your listeners, the International sorry, Institutional Investment Forum, which is chaired by UBS, uh, they just came out with their recommendation on kind of a taxonomy for ESG. We know the CFA Institute is looking at how to have a ESG-related GIPS verification, uh, which will be very important. So we're moving to something that's probably going to be a little bit more standardized. But for us in particular, yes, we do have uh, what we would call SRI impact investments, and those are those dual-purpose portfolios that I mentioned. So that global equity portfolio, we still have it. It's called our Global Sustainability Fund. It still has that dual mandate. And then we have several what we would call impact investments, where we get clients that are looking for a specific piece of ESG as opposed to doing good holistically or in aggregate. They want to focus on water. They want to focus on climate transition. Um, so we have several investments there. But interestingly, even given our history um, and along the self-reflection line, we realize there's another benefit or an evolution to ESG that we think kind of the rest of the industry will pick up on soon. Uh, but for us, it started about three to four years ago. And that was that ES an ESG framework. So environmental factors, social factors, uh, and governance factors just give anybody, whether you're a quantitative manager, a top-down, say, country uh, you know, sector rotation manager, bottom-up stock picker, it just gives you a much better understanding of the individual stock or maybe fixed income credit or country that you're looking at to invest in. And that's just because of how really the world has changed. So the modern company or the company today doesn't look anything like a company did 30 years ago. When you think of the Amazons and the Googles and the Ubers and all these different firms, there's huge amounts of intellectual capital, huge amounts of intellectual property, a significant reduction in hard assets, how governance permeates the company is very important, cybersecurity, things of this nature. An ESG framework is very effective for analyzing those type of more qualitative risks in addition to looking at a balance sheet, looking at a cash flow statement, um, trying to figure out what forward earnings or revenue are going to be. And so it just gives you a much more complete picture. And we think it, especially in the realm of what we would call tail risk mitigation. So using ESG to help determine where are the potential big risks for this company and how good of a job is this company doing addressing those risks? And is the risk so big that we should maybe not invest in it? Um, or do we think the company is, is addressing it very well? So we call that integration, but even given our history, that's only about three and a half, four years old, but we're applying it across our entire investment apparatus starting with public equity, now with fixed income, but it's going to go into infrastructure and really permeate the entire investment platform. With time at a premium for everybody, especially advisors, as the price compression goes down, they need to manage more assets, more staff, 
What are companies like you doing to help them be successful? It's all about uh, partnership, which sounds a little bit cliched, I understand, but you know, getting out of that mentality of a mandate only. This is a mutual fund, and once you're invested in it, then you're just a faceless advisor or investor. The reason why you chose it is because it was performing well or fit some other purpose, and that's really the end of it. Or the only time you would see someone again uh, from an asset management firm was to sell you another product or a different one. And now it's reverted much back to a, a firm first or an organization first and product second to where advisors, and it's not just in the retail space, institutional investors, large, very sophisticated public funds, endowments, investment consultants, they are really seeing investment firms as, or they want to see their investment firms as a true partnership. So what else are you giving me outside of this mandate? How, how can you help me understand the rest of my portfolio? What are the important things that I should be looking at? And they are really seeing that as inclusive of the mandate that you have with them. And in some cases, there actually isn't a mandate. So we may be approached first and you know we offer something called ESG University where we bring advisors into our New York office. We also do it in California. No product discussion whatsoever, purely educational. It's We just want to help you understand what, what ESG is all about. We have a long history here. You know, you may end up selecting another firm because of, it, because of it, that's fine, but we really want to be more of that partner. And I think that's probably the biggest change, especially with the fee compression that's going on. So why did you pick this industry? Uh, I don't have an exact answer. I, I think the easy one is my father was, uh, he was a, a journalist. So going back to the, the old days when newspapers pl- proliferated, excuse me, growing up in Colorado, we had the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. Now it's just the Denver Post. So he was business editor for the Rocky Mountain News, and he had a morning radio show on public radio that was sponsored by Betcher, which is an old bond trading firm um, that doesn't exist anymore. And he would talk about investments specifically on that. So I would listen to him in the morning because I was a very proud son, knowing my father was on the radio, um, although he joked that it was myself and my sister were the only two people listening. But his discussion on investments got, that kind of piqued my interest. And then that, I think, combined, and this is a very distinct memory, um, was a We had a teacher in high school, junior year in high school, Dr. Brown, who uh, taught investments in economics. And in that, we had one of your classic stock picking contests. It only lasted two weeks, a terrible time frame for giving someone a realistic view of how you should invest. But you only had the value line, the real thick value line books uh, to do the research. And it was whoever can pick the five best stocks over those two weeks. So I think my father's job in that class in particular sent me on the road to want to be wanting to work in investments. And what led you to Alliance? What's kind of been the path towards there? Uh, so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, I think what colored my my view, what colored my view, perhaps the right way and the wrong way at the same time, was I joined the industry officially out of school and started studying for my CFA right away in 1999, which you can argue is either the best or the worst time to get into public equities because it was a completely unrealistic view of how things worked. And I worked for, for Janus, uh, at the time was just Janus, was still owned by a railroad company of all things, Kansas City Southern Industries in 99. But I'm probably massacring the statistic, but it was a fairly significant one that something like two or three out of every $10 going to mutual funds overall were going to Janus funds. So a lot of the technology boom, they were riding the bubble, all that. So it was growing rapidly. It was exciting. Everything looked great. And then it all kind of came crashing down. So within the span of my first couple of years, I saw both kind of the, the great part of 
parts of our industry and also kind of the ugly parts of our industry. And I knew I wanted to either do investment management, but then once I started interacting more with clients, kind of a few different firms, some private equity, I worked on the investment consulting side for a firm called Nikita uh, for a while, and then finally joining um, another predecessor to Allianz, Intech, but I started doing more client-facing responsibilities. And I certainly liked the investment side of it and analytical side, but I also very much enjoyed interacting with clients, educating them, getting their feedback, having them educate me, and just enjoy that face-to-face opportunity. And so kind of a product specialist or strategist type role became the great way to straddle both of those camps. Life has its ups and downs and its highs and lows. And this is the Permission to Succeed podcast. Was there there a time in your life when you kind of had to look in the mirror and and say, there's no one coming? It's, it's, it's It's on me. It was actually when I joined my earlier fr- my uh, firm right before Allianz, so Intech. So I joined them in 2006. Uh, Intech is a, is a quant firm, purely a quant process. They run really the, uh, the same quant approach that they just overlay onto a variety of benchmarks, almost all institutional. So prior to that, although I'd been an investment consultant, I dealt more, I think, with, with mutual funds, more on the retail side. And here I was entering uh, a space that I thought I knew well, but I was relatively young. Uh, compared to a lot of my other compatriots. So my role at Intech was very similar, this product specialist role where with prospects or clients, I would go out and talk about our process. I'd never directly represented a quantitative approach before, and we had very smart, very humble, very, very nice people in our research team, but all PhDs in physics and mathematics, which was a little bit daunting for me when I first joined, then being younger than a lot of my compatriots, being solely institutional focused, so I'm interacting with some of the smartest folks in the business from an investing standpoint. I'm I'm not one of those. So it was very daunting, but it definitely took some inner, I don't want to say courage, but permission for myself to succeed to say, you know what, I kind of am well equipped for this. You know, I do understand what it is that we're doing. I think that I can phrase it in a way that most folks will understand, which is kind of the trick with quant investing. You're not supposed to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to try to convey what it is that the smartest people in the room are doing so that folks understand it. And that kind of led me on a nice journey of nine years there. That was, I would think, was successful. So nothing but fond memories. Are you excited about the future for the industry? Uh, I am. I am. I'd rather, I like the dynamic aspect. I like how things are changing. I think self-reflection is, is important for all of us personally and as a firm. Allianz Global Investors, it's just, it's a fantastic firm to work for. You know, having our parent company with Allianz uh, just you know, treats its employees very well. It's doing all the right things kind of internally, treating its employees well, making sure everyone there is taken care of, giving us the resources to go out there and to effectively partner with our clients. I think Allianz understands that, that is that value proposition going forward, uh, perhaps more so than some others. And when you kind of have someone who has your back like that, for lack of a better word, you know, gives you something good to talk about and that you genuinely, not just because you're trying to sell something, but you genuinely believe in what it is you're saying to the clients, that comes through to them, that engenders more trust, and I'm excited because I think that will create, hopefully, a much more personal relationship uh, with investors going forward, both institutional and on the advisor side. What would you, what advice would you give to the younger generation who are thinking about financial services but aren't sure as a career? Kind of the same path I took is there's so many different avenues you can take. Uh, you know, don't be shy about, I don't want to encourage someone just to, to hop around uh, from an employer to an employer, but even within one firm, definitely explore all the different avenues you can do by actively talking to the individuals uh, that are in those 
I'll say divisions, for lack of a better word. Um, something I didn't mention to Janice that was great was the portfolio managers were very accessible. The analysts were accessible. I would get to know folks in the compliance department, which sounds a little bit strange, client servicing, but just actually talking to individuals who have done it for a long time. It can just kind of give you a roadmap of, well, yeah, this is what my daily activity tends to look like. Here's what my monthly, yearly activity looks like. I never talk to clients. I always talk to clients. You know, if you're going to sell, here's what I think your strength should be if it's your salesman. Uh, if you're going to work in a back office internally, you have to have a real good attention to detail. But once you get out of school, actually talking to the folks within your firm that have been doing it will just give you a much better idea of what better aligns with you and where you think you might be happy. Um, and I think putting that first as opposed to, okay, what's the division where I can make the highest possible salary or be the most famous or be on TV the most, that you'll end up with a much longer and happier career if you do the former. If people want to experience Allianz, where can they go? They can go to uh, alliancegloballinvestors.com, and then from there we have a variety of different kind of sub-websites depending on the uh, area that you're looking at in particular. Thank you so much for being with us today. I very much appreciate the time. It was fun. We'd also like to thank the people at Discovery Data for hosting us and Charles Schwab Impact, the best conference in the industry. For everyone at Iris MediaWorks and the Permission to Succeed production team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thank you so much for joining us. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here.